Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Every morning when I'm leaving the coffee shop, I stop at Publix on my way back to the apartment. I get a small sandwich or fruit salad, and then I eat it while I'm walking home. And on my way home, I pass this one particular homeless guy every single day. And he's mostly docile. Every now and then he has a screaming fit, but it's never directed at anyone. It's always just like up at the sky or at traffic. For the most part, he just stands on the sidewalk, talks to himself, and scribbles. He's got loose sheets of paper, sometimes it's on cardboard, usually like the backs of election, sort of like candidate signs from lawns. We've gotten to a point now where he will occasionally make a, a sign to me, like he's writing in the air, and but he doesn't have a pen in his hand, and it's his way of asking for a pen. This guy does speak, but he doesn't seem to speak to people, only to himself or whatever cosmic ethereal entities to whom he is addressing his constant monologue. Anyways, every day when I'm walking to my apartment eating this fruit salad or the sandwich, this guy sees me and he doesn't ask me for the food, but he's, his hands are at his side and he starts wiggling his fingers, kind of like a gunslinger getting ready to draw. And he doesn't look at me, but he looks at the food and he starts mouthing things. And he, he speaks Spanish and he's always mumbling, so I don't know exactly what he's saying, but it's obvious that the thing he wants is my food which now and then, fine, I'll give him, you know, the half that I haven't eaten, but I don't want to do that every day. Except I know that I should, that as a person with some measure of disposable income, it would mean nothing if I just gave this dude half of my fucking little cup fruit salad. And then on the way, I still have like a five blocks to walk, just get something else on the way to my apartment. Or have a second thing, I get a second thing at Publix, put it in my bag, and then eat it on the other side of that guy. But I don't want to. And I don't think that most people would begrudge me for the fact that I... I, I, I don't, I don't indulge, I don't give him half of my lunch every single day, but it does prompt me every day to question the fucking moral obligations inherent to my privilege, which is a very useful word that I hate to use because it's now so politicized. Kind of like the word politicized, which is a very useful word that I hate to use because it's so politicized. But either I give this dude half of my fruit salad and then while I'm walking back to my apartment, I'm like, fuck, I wish I could have finished that fruit salad. Or I don't give him the fruit salad and then while walking and eating the fruit salad by hand, I'm like, fuck, I'm such an asshole. And then I can't enjoy the fruit salad, but I am so regular. The fecundity of my day is so is so predicated on this Pavlovian fucking maybe semi-autistic adherence to a very strict schedule, and that is the time at which I eat, that is the setting in which I eat, and it kind of, if I don't eat then, I fucking disrupts my day. But maybe that's what I need to do, and just sort of acclimate to some sort of new creative schedule. And, but then I'm like, why the fuck am I doing this? Just because there's some random homeless dude who wants my meal, and now I'm all bent out of shape. Anyways, look, I reread Lois Lowry's book, The Giver, last week, and I think it's about being gay. Oh, yes, that's right. You see, all an erection is is an increase in blood in the penis, which is made up mostly of sponges. I didn't actually read The Giver when I was in middle school, back when it was assigned to us, and I know that this is going to sound fucking ridiculous, but I'm pretty sure that the reason I didn't read that book is 
well, there's two reasons. The first reason is that there's no monster in it, which was basically a prerequisite for anything I read before the age of 14. But the main reason I never read The Giver when it was assigned in middle school is because of the fucking paperback edition we had to use. It was a it was a flimsy paperback. It was about the size of a deck of cards. There were no margins. The spacing was like negative one. It looked as though the words were overlapping and it, it just, that shit stressed me out so much. I distinctly remember picking up that edition in the mass market paperback of this wonderfully inviting and inventive and, and warm novel and just feeling immediate dread because the text was so dense and fucking forbidding looking. And I'm willing to bet that you looked at it and you also felt dread. I know that it sounds very neurotic to be this fucking worked up about the spacing in a book, very like anal retentive and judgy, but part of the reason it's jumping out to me now with such clarity and such urgency is strangely is because of the Steve Jobs biography that I read last year. I think I talked to you as I was reading it. Apparently Steve Jobs was very intense about typography at Apple. He was incredibly attentive to the shaping and the spacing of words on a page or on the outside of a computer on any device that they released. And the reason that there is an industry behind typography and a scholarship behind typography is because the way that a word looks on a page informs your perception of its content. If I write you a letter in my very floral matronly cursive and it says to you reptiles don't have nipples that's going to be kind of confusing because the shape of the very matronly lettering suggests that you are about to read a very elegant or refined thought whereas if i sent you a letter in like bold all capital letters like a newspaper headline from 1870 or an email from your grandparents and then you you open the note and the note says broccoli is actually a flower that's also gonna be kind of confusing at first because th th this is an elegant and refined thought. Broccoli is a flower, but the lettering set you up to expect something abrasive or whatever. Anyway, the reason I think The Giver is the gayest book since Fight Club is because it's about a utopian society in which all of these kids are told in a ceremony on their 12th, on their collective 12th birthday, what job they're going to have for the rest of their life in their society. And the main character, Jonas, he is told that he's going to be the receiver. What the receiver does is he sits in a room with a wise old man, the one pictured on the cover of the book, and that wise old man is the giver. And the giver's job is he imparts knowledge to the receiver, knowledge that has been forbidden from this larger utopian society, knowledge about war, about grief and sexuality and the big twist toward the end of the novel, the knowledge of color. The people who run this utopian society have somehow managed to eliminate color. Everything is in black and white. So talking about a queer interpretation, we can set aside the fact that much of this book involves two men alone in a room. One of them is called the giver and another is called the receiver. But the way that the giver transmits knowledge to the receiver, Jonas, is that Jonas has to get undressed and let the elderly man touch him. And those scenes are pretty intimate. However devoid of overt sexuality, they are described in a very tender way. When Jonas starts to have his beyond vision, which is he starts seeing color, around their enclosed society, the image that the giver transmits to him to sort of catapult him into the realities of color is he says, okay, get undressed, that's square one, get undressed, kid gets undressed, the giver touches his back and transmits the image 
of a rainbow. Just because the giver has always been around. You might, th that paperback, you've seen it a million times, you might have also thought that it was written in 1930, fuck. It was not, it was written in 1993. And the, I looked it up, the LGBT flag depicting the rainbow was, was designed in like the 40s. So apart from the fact that the LGBT umbrella is broader and more inclusive now, the rainbow meant in 1993 what it means today. Also, shortly before Jonas starts going there, he has a wet dream. They don't say overtly that it is a wet dream or that he, he ejaculated, but he has a dream where he's in a bathtub and he is trying to coerce a young woman that he knows to join him naked in the bathtub. He recounts this dream to his parents at breakfast and his mom says, okay, cool, you're getting your stirrings. And now you need to start taking these pills that will subdue your sexual impulses, which I think is a pretty inspired idea on Lois Lowry's part when it comes to sort of developing her utopia, because it made me wonder if sex and sexual impulses and anxieties and sexual politics in the history of human endeavors have has sexuality prompted more pleasure or pain? Anyway, once this kid starts doing his thing with the giver, once he sees the rainbow, he stops taking his pills. And, and Lois Lowry doesn't then say, oh, and now after discovering the rainbow and giving up his uh, sexual suppressants, Jonas was a fully realized gay man. Although he does then kidnap a baby and go to a Christmas party to which he was not invited. It's a terrific book and I don't remember a word being said about sexual subtext when we were discussing this book in class because that would definitely have compelled me to read it. If a teacher had just held up this book and said the word sexuality, I would have done my homework. Maybe it was intentional that the teacher never addressed the sexuality part, but not in a censorious way. Maybe, like maybe she had noble intentions. What I'm wondering is if in 2002, Mrs. Figueres, who, by the way, literally tried to rob me one time, and no, I'm not exaggerating and being personal about it, but I wonder if maybe she was just thinking, if there is a queer student in the class who's discovering their sexuality, maybe just let them feel that queer subtext, and maybe they would you know, prefer to explore it privately. Because there's two other things I remember on the subject of sexuality and like sexual identity from my three middle school years. One of those two things, and it seems weird that it was so consistent, but in all three years, there was one guy, always in eighth grade, who was out and who demonstrated pride, who wore rainbow pins or wristbands, something to that effect. And in retrospect, actually, now it occurs to me, I wonder, there were a lot of kids who wore wristbands? I don't know if that was a fashion thing or if maybe it was like covering up self-harm. I remember there was always one eighth grader who was very out and proud, but also, in all three years, I remember there was one kid who everyone suspected was queer. And that one kid knew that other people suspected it, but it was never mentioned. I mean, of course, it was meant in middle school. There's a, there's a fucking, there's a Cormac McCarthy line in his book, Blood Meridian, and it goes like this. The truth about the world, he said, is that anything is possible. Had you not seen it all from birth and thereby bled it of its strangeness, it would appear to you for what it is. A hat trick in a medicine show, a fevered dream, a trance bepopulate with chimeras having neither analog nor precedent, an itinerant carnival, a migratory tent show whose ultimate destination, after many a pitch in many a mudded field, is unspeakable and calamitous beyond reckoning. That's also literally middle school. I also kind of love the dystopic vision that gave birth 
to middle school, because I imagine it was some seasoned educator who called a meeting and said, we can all agree nothing on earth is worse than a human being between the ages of 11 and 14. We are gonna put all of them in one building and leave them there for three years. The first time I remember ever seeing an adult cry in front of me was my fifth grade teacher, this is elementary school, my fifth grade teacher as 9-11 was unfolding on TV. And this is not an exaggeration. The second through twelfth time, probably, that I saw adults cry in front of me, they were all teachers at Palmetto Middle School, driven to, to tears by the, by the godlessness of their job. But so, of course, there were people who would say horrible homophobic and transphobic things, and that's part of my thinking. Like, I wonder if Miss Figueres was like, let me not put that queer kid in question. Let's say, the, let's call the questioning kid Sam. Let me not put Sam in the situation where, in class, we're talking about queer elements in the novel, and as we're discussing that subtext, everyone is throwing sideways glances toward Sam and making them feel very uncomfortable and a little bit too noticed. My enduring verdict as to the status of Mrs. Figueres's moral fiber is that it was uh, lacking, but it's still, it's interesting to consider that she might have fostered such concerns. And also to wonder if that would even have been the right course of action. Like if it wouldn't have been wiser to just put the queer subtext out there and have everyone discuss it and just see where the chips fall. Which reminds me, a quick digression. Okay, so I was in a geography class in sixth grade and at one point we were, we were talking about Europe and the history of Europe and how the geography was influenced by certain historical factors. And we had this assignment one day and it was a very chatty class. It was a very typical kind of fucking room full of 11 and 12 year olds. And the teacher said, okay, for this assignment, I'm gonna pass, a, I'm gonna pass around pictures of kids and they're very old and they're laminated. So just make sure everyone here has a picture of a child. And so these laminated sort of, I don't know, three by five inch glossy black and white photos of kids from, you know, the middle of the century. They're being passed around and of course we're all laughing at it and mocking their haircuts, their outfits. Oh, he looks funny. Look at how stupid this person looks. And our teacher, Miss Kratz, she let us do that for a few minutes. And I noticed that she was watching us be disruptive. She was watching us talk a lot of shit and she wasn't intervening. She was letting us do our shtick. And then she called everyone to silence and she started the lesson and she goes, okay, every one of those kids that you are holding a photo of died in a concentration camp. And we all shut the fuck up. There was like a fucking cloud of shame in that room. It was so fucking poignant. The Giver is a good book. I definitely suggest you go back to it if it's been a few years and that you look at it through that queer lens. You'll probably pick up some things that I missed. Also, make sure that you get a double-spaced trade paperback with margins for your notes. Say, somebody ought to give you guys the word. Okay, wise guy, what is it? Hey, what's going on here? Well, these goofballs have never heard of a menstrual period, and I was trying to tell them. And he didn't know what he was talking about either. Yeah. yeah. Okay, simmer down. Have a seat. I brought some charts. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard and you'd like to hear more of it, you can help the show along by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Thousand Movie Project, where you will get bonus episodes that are Patreon exclusive, and where, for the month of March at least, I am sending out chapters of uh, the book that I just finished writing called Cuba Fruit. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.